Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Off the Pulpit. My name is Eugene. I'm Jason. I'm Thomas. Three pastors and three friends conversing on life, culture, and church off the pulpit. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we have a new episode as we talked about, or as you already saw the title, kind of dealing with your past. So we'll get into that. But as usual, I will open up our mailbag. Uh, ha- thank you everyone again for sending a lot of questions in. Um, so a couple questions that you guys sent in that I want to ask all of us. Uh, first off is another worship question. So I, Jason, you can answer this first. Uh, should we sing Hillsong worship, Bethel and Elevation, et cetera, et cetera, given the controversy around these churches and ministries? I so I guess Jason I want, is... I want to hear what Jason has to say. Yeah, as, as, a, as a former worship pastor and someone that's very invested in worship, what, what's your take on this? Uh, we still sing uh, Bethel Hillsong and Elevation. Okay, so Jason's all good with it, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to your conscience, though. And also, you know, every congregation is different. I think, you know, I think we talked about it in a previous episode. You know, I, obviously, like, I think if your entire congregation is, like, really stumbled by the fact that you're singing a song by a certain artist or group, you know, maybe you should actually, maybe you should think twice about singing that song. Um, I like for me, obviously it's not an apples to apples comparison, but I mean, we read all the Psalms by King David and, you know, King David did some things that I'd say makes Carl Lentz look not that bad. So, um, I don't know. Those are my two cents. I've never heard of that. That's good. Uh, Tom, any any thoughts for you? I agree. All right. There you go. So it's a okay. You guys can sing it out loud. Uh, another question we got thoughts on girls asking guys out from a biblical perspective um, more common these days uh, especially with hinge and all these apps too but I guess for you guys yeah what are your thoughts on girls asking guys out as the first move kudos to those girls man kudos mm-hmm. to them and go for it hey three three thumbs up right there right all right anything to add Jason no yeah, three thumbs up. Go for it. If someone does approach you, that's awesome as a guy. Uh, I, I, so I guess a little bit more of a serious question. Uh, one was, that, you know, there's a lot of perspectives on Genesis in the seven-day creation. So one person asked for all three of us, uh, is the seven-day creation for you guys literal or ar- allegorical in your own perspective? Uh, so I taught on this like a while back, and I think when you do a deep dive, into it I don't know how you could take it as the writer's intention to be literal I can understand how people take it literally but to see like what did the Genesis author intend to do like when you see Genesis 1 it's 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 all about like poetry like you see like day one day two God spoke God spoke this repetition this rhythm that's kind of there and then you see in Genesis 2 a second creation story that's more just a story about from you know the mankind's perspective how they're created, which you actually see throughout the Old Testament. You always see oftentimes the writer in the Pentateuch tell a story, and then he says a story like in a poetic way. For example, the crossing of the Red Sea. You see the mm-hmm. Red Sea where you have a story of what Moses did leading Israel into the wilderness or into the, through the Red Sea. And in the next chapter in Exodus, you see Miriam singing the song, talking about the Exodus in poetic fashion. And so you kind of just see that rhythm happen where you have a story and you have a, a song about the story. And I think that's what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is Genesis 2 is the creation story in, in story form or narrative form. And in Genesis 1, is like a song 
about creation. And so, and that's the whole purpose of Genesis 1. It's meant to like praise the creator and the creation that he's making. And you just see it all over the, the literary genre of how it's written. And so I feel like it's not as obvious to us, but especially like in the original Hebrew, it just screams poetry. doesn't mean God can't create things literally in seven days. But mm-hmm. when you look at what Genesis 1 is doing, I can't help but see how you can't see it as being poetic in nature. Yeah, I mean, agree there, I guess. I wish we kind of disagreed because it's one of those things we, <laughs> I know there are differing views on it, but definitely agree. I mean, right behind me on my bookshelf, I have an American history textbook, an issue of Time magazine, some children's books, you know, a book on leadership, all meant to be read very differently. You know, when mm-hmm. you read, when you open up the book of Philippians in the Bible, you know right away by its structure that it's a letter addressed to specific people in a specific place and time. When you open up the book of Psalms, you know that it's a collection of songs just by the structure of the passages. And I think when you open up Genesis 1, right away, you notice, you know, I mean, the the idea of it being a song really speaks to me because there is like a clear pattern of repetition. There's a hook, you know, this like regular pattern of God said, and it was so, you know, God looked and saw that it was good, you know, just over and over again. So I think is meant to be read as something that is supposed to tell us something theological rather than something something scientific or or you know yeah yeah historical per se yeah i i mean honestly the average reader for genesis they're not thinking like us so it's it's already a mistake to think in that way of a very scientific western mindset i think tim mackey put it best at least in my opinion with this i agree with tom jason someone asked him is it literal he said maybe Maybe not, but that's not the point. And I, and I think that that kind of sums it up well. So I hope that's helpful with that question. So another question we got is, what are the different giftings between a lead and an associate pastor? Also attached, do you all see yourselves in your role as a lead or an associate indefinitely? So again, this could be probably an episode of its own, probably do one. But to give some context, all three of us were associates. At one point, I myself still am. But Tom and Jason became lead pastors in their own journeys uh, in, in two or three years ago. So I guess for you guys, the first question, what do you feel like are the differences and the different giftings between a lead and an associate? I guess it's it's hard to think about it in terms of giftings because, yeah, like you said, I think, you know, different uh, people have different giftings. And so I would say if you're a lead with a certain set of giftings, it'd probably be good to surround yourself, surround yourself with associates who kind of compliment you and yeah. have um, different giftings. So I like to think about it maybe more as a difference in role. Mm. And I mean, one thing I think, um, one way my role has changed when I from being an associate to now being the lead is definitely, um, I do think you set the trajectory in terms of the vision and the values of the church. And I think um, everything kind of trickles down from you. So in some sense, like you are setting the staff culture um, and, you know, I think, um, everything about your staff culture, embodying the vision and the values ultimately trickles down to the rest of the converse, uh, congregation. So I do think you're kind of like the first, um, you know, uh, person to kind of, kind of, yeah, lead the way in that sense. Mm. Yeah, I agree with Jason. I think it depends on like the role that you're given as the associate um that could change and i think what's supposed to be is if you're the lead you're kind of more of a generalist but if you're the associate you're more of a specialist 
Um, but I think that works more like in mega church settings. I feel like in more common church settings, uh, the associate pretty much does what the lead pastor doesn't want to do. <laughs> so, I think Kay has told me that word for word. <laughs> uh, and I, I know that, and so it's almost like the posture is different from each position. Like the posture of the lead pastor is they have to lead, they have to set the tone, they have to be proactive, they have to think ahead and be vision visionaries because no one else is going to even feel like that permission to do that. Versus the associate, their posture is to support the lead, to make the lead uh, think and to help. And so I feel like in that way, the posture and the attitude, that kind of varies. Um, but I will say both of them are stressful in different ways. Yeah. I, I would add, I guess, a little context to the last part of Tom's too. I feel like, I feel like obviously being a lead is just naturally harder, but I think being a really good associate is even harder because it's so easy to coast as an associate pastor. Like, and Tom's mentioned this before in a blog post, like, if you're the associate, people will complain to you about the lead. Like, and you know, it's always the lead's fault. So you're always like, oh, you know, I'm playing, like, you know, I'll pray for them. And you and your boys playing mediator. Um, and I, you know, I'm close to Tom and Jason seeing them turn to leads. You see that shift where that weight is different. So I think that's hard. But I think with the associate, the difficulty is, and speaking as an associate for like, what, the last seven years now, um, I think your job is kind of like, you have to really figure out your lead and, and, try and do your best to almost be like as a therapist like okay how can i help them in a healthy way and make sure that they don't lose their mind um so a lot of it you know honestly jay will tell me this like you know i i preach when he's on vacation like you know there's there's a reason for that too right but also part of me is trying to figure out like in my in my role as an associate like how can i support jay the best to to help him vision cast so <laughs> yeah i i hope that's helpful i guess the question attached is uh do you see yourselves locked in that role as you guys as leads and myself as an associate indefinitely? I don't see myself like either or. Um, and I'm not sure if it's a good mentality to have to say like I'm meant to be a lead, <laughs> you know? Um, if someone says they're meant to be an associate for some reason, that sounds okay to me. <laughs> but if you're meant to be like a lead, I could see some people are maybe more fit for that in their personality. Uh, but I also find that to be a little bit off-putting. And so I know for me, it's almost like wherever, this sounds very like over, overtly spiritual, but wherever the Lord leads, I will fulfill that calling at that appropriate season. Because there might be seasons where I don't have margin for that, or I'm not meant to, I'm not able to do it anymore, what the church needs a lead to do. So to me, it's literally, it depends on the time and season, and I'm open to wherever God leads me. Hmm. Jason? Yeah, it's hard for me to say. Um, I will say that I actually think I'm more naturally wired to be an associate than a lead. Um, partly because I like to be in that support position. And, um, you know, my, my Enneagram being like a nine and um, naturally kind of a peacemaker, I generally like to be that, play that role as a bridge. And so the part that's been really difficult as a lead is understanding that someone else needs to play that bridge probably for me and the rest of the congregation. And that's kind of a weird feeling. And then, you know, definitely the pressure of the buck stopping with me, you know, like as an associate, it was always nice to have someone else to kick it up to, or, you know, if you're kind of, if you're not sure 
um, where the church stands on something, you can always be like, as the lead. Um, and so to be that person, that's actually been a huge challenge for me and um, something I'm still learning how to navigate. I always say, and I, uh, I actually enjoy hanging out with like a group of associates <laughs> than a group of leads. Cause man, like lead pastors, they like, they just, talk a lot. They, they talk, man. <laughs> Versus when I was in a group of associates, everyone's like waiting for each other to speak and they're very like subversive. And it's like, these are like my people, man. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I think for myself, honestly, I have no desire to lead or plant. I know some some people go into associate ministry or associate role wanting to become a lead. I don't really have that. Uh, honestly, a lot of that seeing uh, Tom go through the lead uh, transition and even Jay being honest. Sometimes I'll tell people like, oh, that's up to Jay. So I click, I'll kick it up to him and they'll come back and be like, oh, Jay kicked it back down to you. So that's, <laughs> that's my dynamic with Jay, which I, hey, it, it was. Shout out Jay song. Shout True out North. Jay song. One of the greatest lead pastors of all time. Uh I, I wish I wish lead pastors would do a character profile on Jay Song because they, they would learn a lot, and I I, I mean that is all hundred percent genuineness. I would um, work for Jay. If you can't work for Jay, there's a problem with you. Like I I've come very clear with that. But anyways, um yeah. So for me, honestly, I don't have I kind of like Tom, but I, I don't see myself or want myself to actually be in the lead ministry. I like being in associate ministry too. So that's that's for me. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, last question we got. How do you encourage your members to engage in political topics in this time and not kill each other? Uh, so uh, we talked about politics before too, but I, I think generally those that listen to our podcast uh, have a leaning of wanting to be more, you know, just in the know of what's going on and, and to be a more faithful disciple in that way. So I guess for you guys, what tips would you give either leaders or church members in dialoguing about abortion, gun rights? the 2024 election how do you do that in a in a winsome and graceful way it's hard but i think what makes it easier two thoughts is one um on your camp are you listening to winsome and gracious people <laughs> you know if you're always surrounded by angry and radical folks then don't be surprised if you come off like radical and angry as well. So from your camp, who are the, who are the voices? Are they winsome and gracious? And the second thing is when the other camp, I feel like it's really important to hear from them rather than hearing about them. Yes. Like you got, like, don't read a democratic view of the other side. If you're a Democrat, but read the Republican person who's writing that perspective. Cause I feel like you'll understand at the very least a little bit more like, Oh, this is how they came to their conclusion. And it's not crazy. You might disagree, but the reasoning is there and it's not biased from their, from like your side, but you can kind of hear from their voice, why it makes sense to them. So I find myself gaining a lot from not just reading from my side, but reading the opposite side and hearing from their own voice, what they're trying to say. And it makes me at the very least understand how they, they came to that conclusion, even if I disagree with that conclusion. Really like that. And also I, I think specifically for church leaders, um, I'd say if you're um, leading a, a conversation or you're facilitating a conversation around some of these difficult topics, what I found helpful, though it can almost feel awkward um is to actually set ground rules um you know like uh, anytime we do a book club around like a politically charged book or um have a politically charged conversation 
you know, um, especially in a community group or in a leadership cohort, you know, we actually like do a community agreement before we even start the conversation. And it almost feels weird because sometimes you're like, well, these are my friends or these are my brothers and sisters. You know, we shouldn't have to do this. But I find that spelling it out at the beginning is really helpful. Like for us, for example, um, before we had a, we, we actually did a leadership cohort around the secular creed. We had Rebecca McLaughlin on, um, on the podcast and we talked about some difficult issues and we actually had everyone kind of acknowledge a community agreement that was four things. And it was to staying, number one was to be stay engaged. So don't just check out if something, you know, doesn't fly with you like remaining morally, emotionally, intellectually, socially involved in the dialogue. Number two, be willing to experience discomfort. So kind of naming the fact that discomfort is inevitable in a dialogue about issues like this. Number three was to speak your truth. And I think you have to kind of spell that out, especially for congregations that have a lot of Asian Americans, because I think a lot of times in settings like that, Asian Americans tend to kind of like be passive and to think thoughts, but they don't always um, have the courage to speak their truth. And so being open about thoughts and feelings and and not just saying what you think others want to hear. And then four is to expect and accept non-closure. And this means kind of you're willing to hang out in uncertainty. You know, you're willing to accept a conversation that doesn't resort to quick solutions. Um, and, and one that kind of is unfinished and requires ongoing dialogue. And even just spelling that out just changes the tone of the entire conversation, makes everything a lot more intentional. So I find that really helpful. Mm, That's helpful. Um, the only two things I would add, uh, to that is, I mean, the rule, like ground rules are really great, but sometimes like just some conversations aren't worth having, like you don't, you don't need to go there. Uh, it'll only probably lead to toxicity or, or hurt or friendships broken. Um, so just keep that in mind. And the last thing is there's a great article by Arthur Brooks. I think it's called uh, A Gentler Way to Change Minds. But his main premise is, look, America loves to use your values as a weapon, but see them as a gift. And whenever you give a gift, you give it happily. And his whole point was like, look, if you want to have better political discourse, and I think this works in the church too, uh, you have to be able to give your view in a non-weaponized way. And I think that's the most Christ-like way to do so. Um, so hopefully that's helpful. If you are having these discussions on, you know, whatever the topics are, we encouraged by that. We hope the podcast is helpful too with that. So keep doing that. And, and thanks for sending that in. But thanks for sending in all those questions to our mailbag. Again, if you have any questions, you can DM us on Instagram at Off the Pulpit. But going into our main episode today, uh, we really wanted to talk about Something that every Asian American for sure needs to talk about, um, but dealing with your past. Uh, and we're probably primarily families of origin, but just generally your past. And I, we were messaging about this too. And I think all three of us are in our own journeys of doing that, uh, whether it's short-term past or long-term past. We're all seeing therapy or counseling in some form. And dealing with our past is something we're not experts on. I think all three of us can agree on. But I think all three of us have also reaped the 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 good from that as well. So I guess for you guys, the first general question I want to ask all of us is, what's your own experience and journey in dealing with your past at this current moment? Because I'm going to be honest, like I'll give a short intro for me. I never had to think about this. I never wanted to think about this. But I think 
seeing a counselor, talking to my friends about this, talking to my wife about this has been really helpful. So I'm in a point right now where I'm kind of really digging into my own family of origin, especially my mom and dad, and realizing how much of their relationships affect me now, and we'll get into that. Um, so I'm, I'm there right now, so that's kind of the context I'm walking in discussion with. I guess for you guys, where are you at with that journey? Well, for me, um, I started seeing a counselor, um, and it's been such an important... Um, I actually did it less like um, because there was something maybe specific happening in my life and more so I think um, definitely to process some things but really preemptively mm. just because I rec I'm already starting to recognize how especially in my current role um, like there's so much that the role itself reveals you know I think um, in a previous episode, I talked about Eric Scalise and um, he, his book was super helpful for me because he makes that distinction between the inherent stress versus the internal stress of pastoral ministry. So the inherent stress being like the things that come with ministry, right? Uh, certain, you know, role expectations as a lead pastor, you know, wearing a lot of different hats, um, maybe doing things that we're not equipped to do. Um, like carrying the weight of the final say, carrying the weight of the community. Um, so you have like the, the things that are inherent in ministry. And then you have internal stress, which is all the unresolved hurts, unhealthy relationships, insecurities, brokenness, baggage, wounding parental issues from the past. And, you know, if those things haven't been worked out enough, we will bring all of that into ministry with us and then the inherent stress will just draw out all the internal stress. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm finding it so helpful um, to process a lot of my internal stress with my counselor, because I can already see how just like the day-to-day -day grind of ministry, you know, if not, like if my internal stress isn't checked or processed, how it will so easily bring it out, you know? And I, I, I just always find myself like on the edge of that, you know, so. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think for me, I've discovered how important my past was when I was kind of forced to. And like, and I think it comes out not just in ministry, but in like intimate relationships. Like that's when like the real you comes out. And um, I remember like going through a journey of understanding and even exploring like, oh, this is what happened. Like this is like the things that took place. These were like like the movie Inside Out, those core memories, just like identifying those and seeing what shaped you. That was just really helpful. Um, so I think that's kind of like level one of just knowing what your past is because so much of that shapes you who you are. Um, but I would say it, uh, right now what I'm journeying through is I, I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what my past is. But I don't have a good understanding of like the emotions of those past. Hmm. And I, I feel like uh, I, I know it in my head, but I didn't, I'm not really exploring it in my heart. And so an analogy I kind of give is um, if I'm in a cave and I'm walking through it, like I know all the rooms, like, oh, that's, that's, this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what, this is like my past. Like I know the, the facts of it, but I'm not able to like go into those rooms and like feel what happens. And I realizing more and more that's so important because one thing I've been learning that I thought was really profound is like, for example, when you feel sad, like, why do you feel sad? And you, know, you could point to surface level things that are happening, but there's actually deep roots to that sadness. That's not just at the present moment. 
And oftentimes you can't even articulate why you're sad. And the reason why you can't articulate why you're sad is because the sadness, it didn't originate in the present. It originated when you're a child. Like sadness is actually a very childlike emotion. And you have to, at that moment, when you feel sadness, first like relieve it and care for it before you can even discover like where it comes from. But I feel like it's such a vulnerable thing that you don't want to go there. So you just lock it in that door. So you're, you know, the facts of sadness, like this is there, but like, what did it even make you feel? And what does it trace to? That's kind of scary. And that's going to be something that I'm kind of journeying through is because especially as an Asian, you're kind of learn you learn to like suppress your emotions. Yeah. And a lot of people who know their past, they just talk about like it's facts. Like, yeah, my parents got separated. It's like, that's a big deal. <laughs> like your parents got separated, but there's no emotion that comes out of it because you haven't really processed the emotions that come with the past that happened. So Tom, mm-hmm. I want to ask you this, and I guess for all of us too, because uh, why do you think, and you kind of already talked about it as a defense mechanism, but I guess for you, like, why do you think it is so hard to unlock the feelings of those rooms? Because I'm like you, like when I'm seeing counseling, my counselor asks me like, what does that make you feel? And I'll tell him, it's like, no, you described what happened, mm-hmm. but not, not what mm-hmm. that makes you feel. And I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't know how to do that, you know? And it's an interesting question. And I guess for you, like, and Jason, jump in anytime too, but like, what, what, what stops you, you think, other than a defense mechanism? So I think it, there is that human element of it where it's just vulnerable to feel, and to, especially when it's a, it's a negative emotion. Yeah. Um, so humanly speaking, you kind of want to like defend yourself and protect yourself. So I think everyone experiences that. But I think especially as Asians and especially as, as, a, as a man, like you're kind of told that emotions are something that are inappropriate expressions, especially negative ones. As Asian culture, we're all about harmony. So to, to do and express anything that breaks that harmony or disrupts it, it's seen as inappropriate. So you're told to like not cry or you're told to like just like stop. And again, as a, as a man also, that's seen as something that men don't do as well. So there's all this like just suppressed emotions that are down and locked deep down inside the, the human heart. But then again, it, it, it leaks and it comes out in, in, in different ways that come off as in, almost like in a, inappropriately in those situations that you, why are you so angry or why are you so as sad as you are? Is because it's, it's just kind of leaking out. So I do think there are like human factors, but also like gender factors, cultural factors. They're all like barriers that stop us from accessing that. That's why Korean churches never have basketball tournaments anymore because all those emotions all the past comes out. Yeah, <laughs> all the right? fodder wounds come out in basketball somewhere. games. But you're not yelling at the ref. You're yelling at someone your dad. <laughs> inside. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree. That's that's a good point because I think even for myself, it's been so difficult. But um, so I guess for you guys, like one question before we get into nitty gritty is to just kind of take a bigger step back. As Christians, and we had an episode on counseling. I think there's a lot of views, Christian views on counseling. But as a Christian also, you know, it's difficult at times when you when you go through your past, oftentimes, especially secular therapy will tell you, you know, you are your past, right? A lot of what has happened is determining who you are, and there's truth to that. But I guess for you guys as Christians, how what's the best way to look at the past with our faith? And, and you know, we're going to get into all of these, like, therapies and, and theories, and they're helpful, but before we do that, I guess just as Christians, what's the good kind of grounding to walk into your past with? Does that does that make sense? One helpful like mental picture that I was given once was like see the the see yourself as like concentric circles and and what shaped you. So at the very center of that concentric circle is like the human soul. Like it's like kind of what uniquely makes you you. 
And then the next concentric circle is like your body, like your physical body, and that obviously affects you. Then the concentric circle after that is like your family of origin, like sociological factors, how you grew up and how you were shaped. And then the concentric circle after that is uh, like spiritual forces, the devil, the evil one, if you want to call it that. And then the final concentric circle is like God and his sovereignty and, and so mm -hmm. forth. And uh, the, the thing that um, I think where secular therapists will focus on is just those two outer concentric circles, which is the body and sociological factors like your upbringing. And again, that's you need that. But we're, we're as, as a Christian, I think we're more than just our family. We're more than just a human body. There's so it's limited. And what the religious people kind of make a mistake of is they only focus on the devil and God and they ignore like the, your background and your body. And I think what, what's the beauty of, of Christianity is you kind of see a more holistic view of what makes you you. Like there, there is your past, there is your physical body. So you need medicine, you need to explore your past, but there's also like you're, you have a soul and there are spiritual elements that's there that's also playing a factor of how you're being shaped. So I feel like um, having a more holistic view of what makes you you will kind of prevent you from falling to that trap of it's just exploration of my past, but also prevents you from having that overtly spiritual view, which is it's just a devil attacking me or it's just God being sovereign. It's like, no, you need to explore all of it. Yeah. No, that circle thing is really helpful because I think even what Tom says is true, but the reverse is true that at times, if you don't get to your past and figure out your soul and your body and all these things, your view of God is also very fractured. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into like one thing that's been really helpful for me is the idea of attachment theory. But I think especially how you <clears throat> related or attached to your father at an early age is so linked to how you see God. Right. And that's already kind of everyone knows that. But I'm just realizing now, like, you think you know that, but you realize as you dig into your own past, if I can't feel what my, you know, hypothetically, if my dad left and I and I can't describe how I feel, that for sure is impacting how you feel with God. There's something missing, too. So I, I always put it where it's like, I think Tom's concentric circles is really helpful. But the reverse is true. There's something in your past that's inhibiting you from seeing God to your fullest ability on this earth. And uh, we hope that we can kind of, you know, murk into that together too. So, but Jason, anything else to add on that question? Yeah. I mean, as Christians, I, I do think it's one thing that we don't always do well is um, encourage people to name the things that have happened in the past mm. and name the ways that they've been shaped by the past. And I think we often just jump quickly to the solution but the gospel isn't really good news for us unless we're able to name kind of what are the things that have defined us up to this point. Because yeah. when you think about like, when you think about Genesis one and you think of Genesis one and two, the creation story, you know, like when before sin entered the world, the creator looked upon his creation and called everything good, right? That was the, the divine benediction. But then once sin entered the picture, the creator's words were no longer the words that defined us, right? So we began to allow other people to define us. We began to buy into false beliefs about ourselves that were perpetuated by our families of origin, perpetuated by the enemy, right? Um, and so like we need to identify what those lies are so that then we can preach the gospel back to ourselves, you know, and, and say, no, this is how... God looks at you. This is, this is what Jesus came to redeem. Right. And so, um, I do think there is naming it is really important, but I think the hope of the gospel is that we don't have to be defined by the past, 
um, but that the most important words that define us um, are the words um, spoken over us by our creator. And so I think that is the good news. So that's helpful, and I hope that's a good grounding as we go into this, because one thing I really want to focus on, and I think the circles from Tom is really helpful, is in church, you've been taught the last two circles a lot. You know, like, if something bad happens, it's, it's Satan, it's Satan, as my mom would always say, right? Or like, you know, or the reverse, oh, that happened, God is in control. Like, oh, you you have trauma, you were abused, God can heal all. Um, yes. But not the complete picture. So what I really want to do with this episode is kind of focus on those closer circles. Because oftentimes, as Christians especially, there's no resources or, or any ideas given to this, right? So I guess for you guys, especially, and I know all three of us have been kind of diving into this. Uh, as pastors, uh, what has been the most helpful theories or resources on understanding your past that you've uncovered recently? Maybe from a therapist, maybe from a, re- a book, or maybe just from an article. Um that has helped you personally deal with your own past? I would say two things have been helpful for me right now. One is like the whole attachment theory stuff, which we could do a deep dive later about that because I have a lot of thoughts on that too. Um, but one thing that's actually been really interesting to me is um, if you're, again, like a typical Asian American like myself and Eugene and, and Jason, uh, I, I don't know how much access I have to my emotions because I was kind of trained to not access that part or to suppress it. And so one thing that I actually been told through counseling that I thought was really helpful is I need to almost like build up that muscle mm. and practice that now. And I heard like the, like the, he, he kind of broke down different levels, which I was helpful. Like the novice level is like, you're just aware of like what your body's feeling and what you're thinking about. And it's crazy to like some people, they don't even know what they're thinking about. Like it's just elevated music in their head and they overwork themselves because they're not listening to their bodies. Um, but just to be aware of like your body's feeling and your thoughts is helpful. Then the next level is like not just being aware of your thoughts and body, but your emotions. Like, are you feeling like, can you name your emotion? Like, what are you feeling right now? And again, that's really hard as basic as that is. And then you kind of reach like this master level when you just, you know, you have your thoughts, your emotions, but now you also know like, this is kind of telling what you believe because what's triggering those emotions, what's triggering those thoughts. And then I actually heard like the, the Jedi master level is you're able to use all that and you say, Hey, now what does this point to? What, what desires do you have? And that's kind of like when you could really get deep into like what you're really, your, your heart's really rooted in. Mm. And so I feel like so many of us, we haven't even begun aware of our bodies or our thoughts and what we're thinking about. So I do feel like one thing that's been helpful is to practice that now, like practice, like build up those muscles so that I can access even the present. And I think that, that's like the pathway to the past mm. of like how I could explore what I was feeling back then. Mm. That's that's. Uh, for me, a couple of resources that have been super helpful. Um, I think a really easy read, and I would strongly recommend this, would be um, all of Pete Scazzaro's stuff around emotionally healthy church and emotionally healthy spirituality. We did an entire series at our church, and he has an entire chapter in his book, um, Emotionally Healthy Church, and I think also in some of his other books called Breaking the Power of the Past. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all about um, how to deal with the past and what the church's role can be in helping a person kind of navigate issues of their past and then essentially reparent them into a new reality. And I think that's been super helpful. Um, maybe a little bit more like um, for a deep, for those of you interested in more of a deep dive, like um, Boenian family systems theory, 
was really helpful mm. for me. And I actually first heard about it in one of my seminary classes. And it was so eye-opening because it's basically like an approach to therapy that, you know, that believed that it was actually all of the kind of issues that we deal with can can actually be boiled down to like patterns that persist in families across generations. Sure. And so all the stuff around like um, how your nuclear family processes emotions, you know, family projection, how you project onto different family members, differentiation of self, like emotional cutoff, like even talks about like sibling positions. Um, so just really interesting um, stuff that kind of like helped me a lot, especially, you know, I think especially it, w- it helps um, Asian people because we are such a familial communal culture. And like so many of us are deeply embedded in our family systems. Um, and so, you know, would definitely recommend that for anyone interested. Is that, is that different from attachment theory? The- I think there are elements of attachment theory that Boinian, you like know, family this. therapy, yeah, gotcha, talks gotcha. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's helpful. I, I think because w- w- one thing I want to talk about is how much our families of origin affect our future families of origin that we make. Uh, and even the church is a family of origin, hopefully. So we'll get into that. Um, so, but w- one thing that's been really helpful for me is learning more about the difference between shame and guilt. Uh, because I kind of like to Tom's point, I think Asian Americans have such a difficulty dealing with emotions because, because we live in a shame-based culture, there's good and bad to that. Um, but a lot of that is you're not allowed to feel because if it's a shame culture you're living in. So for example, uh, even dealing, I guess to get really open, like even with my own family, right? Um, there are things about my parents that I've always felt, man, I don't know if that was healthy, you know, on both ways, but I never wanted to share because I was like, oh, that's so shameful to share that my family is broken, although it seems not broken. Because of that, I just couldn't feel anything. And I realized the difference between shame and guilt that I found helpful uh, on a TED Talk was, and I forgot her name, but guilt is you've done something wrong. Shame is that you are wrong. Whatever you've done has made you wrong. And if you live in a shame culture, you want to do everything to, to rinse yourself of that. And the best way to do that often is what Tom's talking about. You just have no emotional capacity. And like Tom mentioned, I think you got to work it up, but you have to at the same time as a muscle as you're working it up, realize if you don't get rid of that shame that's kind of like lingering over the shoulder, you can never deal with your past <laughs> because it's just going to be, oh, that happened. So I am abu- like I'm messed up rather than that happened. And that was wrong, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, that's why like, dude, white people, they are all up in their feelings. Right, that always like I was always confused like maybe you feel a little bit too much you know like and it's like a little bit too far but I realized like oh because you know for better or for worse you live in a western guilt family right so you do something like hey white white kid gets a DUI right and this happened to my neighbor it's like hey don't do that again next year bought him a new car if I got a DUI I wouldn't have able to drive until I left my parents house right because there's too much shame because my, my parents don't want to see their son driving around and, you know, other parents reminded. So anyways, I think that's really helpful of just and, realizing that how much it's heavy on you. And that's why, like, you know, I, I like I'm down with all of Jason's resources because, you know, I'm familiar with that stuff. But one thing that we have to be careful of is you can't just use that and go, OK, now Asian church, let's practice this. Yes. Because, <laughs> you know, it's very white. 
Yes. And like the way like white people will talk about like your past and so forth, it's almost like just like let it out, man. Just like share it. But it's like, dude, as an Asian American, you can't tell me to get in a room and like, hey, take off your clothes. It's like, hey, man, like there's a lot of shame in like who I am. And, and at the same time, when I hear like the Asians talk about it, it comes from a very like immigrant type of household where like it's a very it's very clearly from like a km em type of setting and there's a strong disconnect with like their community and culture of, of like of uh first gen second gen mm-hmm. but like that unique second gen arena where we're told to like express our emotions and to and we almost feel like we should and yet there's still something holding us back it has to all be like translated uniquely for our context it's a in my opinion it's a big mistake just to apply uh, pete scazzaro to the congregation without some type of translation for the congregation that's Asian American. Yeah. That's so true. That's so true. And I, that's, that's why they say that like, if a white person gets caught like naked, they always cover all their private parts. But if an Asian person gets caught naked, they always cover their face. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, so good. I've never thought of I that. I can't bring shame to my family name, you know? <laughs> that's so funny. No, but you know, even to have, you know, like when, when yeah. uh, people come out of the courts in Korea, like it, one thing they always yeah. do is they cover their face. I'm yeah, like, oh. Yeah. But like Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, they're like, they're getting the, all their pictures taken and stuff like that. It's so interesting. So I remember like in seminary age, like they made us do like these like family portraits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, it was like, like, you're supposed to like pose people like to display your family. And it's, you know, it's a, I understand the exercise. Like you're exploring your past and you know, like you're having your father like stand a certain way. And it's like, like since he was a stern man, but it's like, dude, as an Asian, I can't do that, man. Like that's too, too quick, dude. You're making me get naked in front of my whole class. Like right now. No, if we're talking about generations, we're probably the first generation critically looking at our past. Yes, yeah, yeah. Our our, like our families in Korea, they always revere the past, right? They even worship the past. So I think it's so different, like you mentioned, Um, and you can't just jump into it. One thing I really want to get into, though, and Tom, I I want your thoughts the most because I feel like you've done a lot of reading on this, is the idea of attachment theory, Um, because I think that's helped me a lot. uh, Reading it, even going through it in counseling, and Jason, I'm sure you have resources too, but. Tom, I guess maybe what, how would you define attachment theory to those that are listening that have no idea what that is? I mean, I'm still learning about what it is too, but uh, pretty much like we, we relate and literally attach to people in ways that aren't, that are learned. I guess that's the best way to put it. You learn how to attach to people. Mm. And so no one is born with a certain type of attachment. Like it's literally like from childhood that you attached to certain relationships and when you feel like the way you're attaching to people or not attaching to people is the way life is you kind of normalize it and it's not until you're in a relationship with someone else who learned attachment in a different way that you run into problems most especially like in marriage, marriage. Yes. and so um and everyone attaches in in very unique ways there's healthy attachments um and there's unhealthy attachments and the unhealthy attachments that's what causes a lot of issues and i, I know one like very general way that was broken down to me that was helpful is the the healthy attachments is you trust yourself and you trust other people. That's like the general, like healthy way to relate to people. Uh, but there's unhealthy ways that it happens. So for some people, they trust themselves, but they don't trust other people. So that what happens is when you're in a situation like that, uh, it's almost like when someone wants to get close to you, you draw back. Hmm. They get close to you, you draw back because you're, you don't really trust people and you're protecting yourself because you went through stuff as a child. Or vice versa, you trust other people, but you don't trust yourself. So you're the one who's always trying to attach yourself to other people and they're like drawing back from you. 
and you become overwhelming. And you know, the, the most dysfunctional is you don't trust yourself or you don't trust people. And so, you know, when you have that type of whatever attachment you you are and you meet different combinations like that, or even the same combination, it just causes a lot of problems. And unless you know where you are and why that happened, uh, you're kind of in trouble. But what's good about this is you could you could actually become healthy. It could get healthier, but you have to first know where you're at. And it's all about attachment. And every Asian American, 99.99%, you are not healthy. Like there, there are, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, and this is the thing. Like it's, um, we're not, I had to go through this with counseling where it's like, am I blaming my parents for my problems? Like that's not the point of attachment theory. Um, because they are, you know, in a Christian framework, they're broken people trying to parent a very innocent soul that's very shapeable. And I, we all know this as parents too. So I think one thing with attachment theory that you have to realize is like, it's not trying to blame someone, right? It's it's owning up to, yeah, my parents were either erratically there or avoidant or not there. Um, but you have to, I think Tom's point is so like, it's so helpful because it makes you own up to this actually happened. And mm-hmm. as Asian Americans, you just don't want to think about it. Yeah. And the reason why you, when you get married and like your wife shuts down or, or you just want to like process everything, AKA my own marriage, right? That, that comes from all this stuff. And, and if you don't explore it on your own, it's just you're setting yourself up for failure in these patterns to repeat. Um, Jason, were you going to say something? No, I mean, I, I, I was going to agree with that. And, you know, especially like we talked a lot, we talk a lot about Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and like um, strengths finders and, yeah. you know, the importance of kind of self-awareness and knowing yourself. And I think a lot of times we don't, for some reason, we don't, uh, include the our past in that, mm. and that's ironic because so much of who we are today is shaped by that. And I do think you know it's incumbent upon us to explore the past um, in order for us to get healthy. Yeah. yeah, I once heard like it's so true. Like uh, your past would determine so much more of a future than your plans. Like, <laughs> and and but we always like just focus on our plans and like what we plan to do. But it's like, dude, your past will dictate your success and your health and your relationships way more than any type of plans you have in the future, any degrees you strive to earn. Just exploration of the past will be, uh, plays just a huge role. Mm. And it's also like, and we'll get into this too, but it's not just that your past forms your future, but your pa- the past of other people form them. So like, you know, when someone's annoying you or very clingy, or you use that word, man, this guy's so clean, this girl's so clingy. Like, there's a reason, right? They are like that. You, no natural human being just becomes clingy out of nowhere. So it's, it also helps you grow in empathy of just like, mm-hmm. as I've grown in my own story of like realizing it, I'm realizing like, wait, my wife has this story, my church people have this story. I'm now the villain in my kid's story probably, and they're gonna see <laughs> therapy for me, right, in a couple of years. So it's just realizing like, dude, this is all connected. And mm-hmm. when you meet awkward people too, it's like, why are they so awkward? They didn't just like wake up one day and be like, I'm going to be socially awkward. There's always some sort of uh, past or trauma that's that's attached to that. And it just helps you grow in your empathy when you understand that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with that, um, kind of getting some Christian stuff. Uh, is there such a thing as generational sins? For you guys, I'm interested to hear your your opinions on that. I mean, I'd say for sure biblically, um, and definitely in my own observations as well. E- just even speaking from my own life, mm. you know, I can trace kind of some of the things that our family has struggled with multiple generations. But I mean, it, it just when you go when you read scripture, 
you know, just let's just take the story of Abraham, right? You you think of Abraham, um, you know, obviously far from perfect, and you know, even though he's kind kind of considered the father of our faith, um, his life was marked by patterns of sin that got passed down from generation to generation. You know, um, you see patterns of deceit, right? Um, twice Abraham lies about his wife being his wife, and then you see some of those same patterns of lying and trickery manifested in his son, Isaac and Rebecca's marriage. Right. And then, um, Isaac's son, Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver manipulates his entire family to steal his brother's birthright. Um, you go four generations down, you get Jacob's sons who conspire together to fake the death of their younger brother, sell him into slavery. Um, so they're, you know, like, you you're kind of seeing almost the the manifestation of sin traveling from generation to generation um and so you know i definitely think generational sin is because i I think we're always going to be shaped by the habits patterns and and, um you know tendencies of of the generation before us Hmm. is there such thing as a generational curse you know okay so obviously there's a crazy charismatic hey you have so for example right this is a personal question uh my son has eczema and my my mother uh goes to a very korean church and told the pastor the pastor came to my mom and said your son must be watching porn because that's a curse given you know so obviously well i guess we all agree that's that's probably not the case right (laughs) <laughs> are you asking us to reassure you <laughs> <laughs> anyways i guess i guess the deeper question i'm asking is like for the generational sins do they do they linger outside of your control um into your own families into your own lifestyles and habits and like if so how do you break out of that does it does that make sense well i, I i'm not sure this this might like take out the spirituality part of it but yeah. i agree with jason there are generational sins that get passed down and there's also generation generational sins that have uh unbelievable consequences that aren't necessarily repetitious but the consequences are there so for example uh if you have a mother who's overbearing and she's and that's just the way she is because she's a worry wart or so forth and if you experience that you might think well i'm never going to be that type of mom or dad i'm not going to worry about my kids at all but then you might become the mm-hmm. you know overly loose parent and it looks completely opposite than your overbearing parent and yet it's the consequence of that parent that was being overbearing and so there are consequences that are always going to take place you reap what you sow and i feel like for us uh, whatever we're doing that is not of God, you're going to see consequences of that. And it gets passed down from generation to generation that way, where it's not, not just repetitious, although that can be one thing, but also just consequences mm. that resulted from your sin. Mm. There's always a, a reaction to sin in, in good and bad ways. No, that, that, that's and for sometimes, I guess it's porn. <laughs> I guess sometimes that happens. <laughs> Take that, Moksani, wherever you're at. Um, I, I, I guess moving to, to, to like, okay, you know that we we can talk a lot about diagnosing our past, and one thing I want to move to is like, how do you take steps from healing from your past, right? So I guess one question I could ask in the beginning is like, how can we break from these destructive patterns that even Tom and Jason and we all just mentioned? Because like our families have them, uh, you know, maybe your trauma carries it from somewhere too outside your family as well. Maybe an institution has that for you. 
But I guess for you guys, like, what what are the best ways to break these broken destructive habits and patterns from our past? I think one thing that's I would say in particular for Asians that I feel is helpful. It's true like universally, but I think for Asians especially is um, to do it with other people, mm. like to let them in. Because uh, one thing that I've heard that I thought was like really helpful is um, you know when you go through like depression um, or sad deep sadness. The biggest problem with that isn't the depression or sadness itself. It's the fact of that you feel alone in that depression and sadness. Because as human beings, we were made to be with people. We were yeah. made to be communal. We were not. It's not good to be alone. Um, and I think that's what drives people to a really dark place is when you feel like you're going through all this and you're very alone. And that a lot of that includes your past. And because and the reason why we want to be alone is especially for Asians is there's so much shame in that but to have somebody see that and to reveal that part of yourself and for them not to shame you but to do the opposite to offer grace or acceptance or validation or affirmation i can't imagine anything more healing because oftentimes the most traumatic parts that happen in our lives it's with people and conversely the most healing Mm -hmm. parts of our lives is meant to happen with people so i do think the hardest and yet the most healing thing that could happen is to allow people into those dark moments of your past because they give you the type of affirmation and care that you're probably longing for when you're going through that originally. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Uh, and to piggyback off of Tom's answer, I think shame, which is related to that, shame is a communal problem, but it's also only solved through community. Like you, you can't will your way out of shame or like think your way out of shame or like feel good feelings your way out of shame. Obviously, in a Christian framework, God and you, that's that's community. So that's a part of it. But I also think on a human level, the only way you can break shame is to find people that will tell you, yes, that happened, but you are not broken or you are not dirty or you are not bad. Until You, you can tell yourself all you want. You have been your whole life <laughs> if, you, if you have been traumatized. Um, but shame requires a communal solution. And I think that's the church has done such a horrible job in that context where discussions, studies, and those are all necessary. We're not saying they're not, but man, often, and even at my own church, you know, even thinking about it with our own, uh, our leadership, there's no opportunities to do this. Like small group itself is often not constructed in a way to give you that. I'm not trying to point fingers or anything, but, um, I think that's a big thing that shame is such a communal problem. And the only solution is through community too. So and that's why if you ever did like a life map, I don't know if you ever did that before, where you look at your past and you write stuff down and what happened. That's actually really helpful to do on your own. But I don't know about you guys, but the most healing part is when I shared it with like a group of people. It's like when I shared it and I had feedback about my life, there was that moment that was actually the most like healing. So creating myself is helpful, but having affirmation and people uh, kind of dignify it, that's what created a lot of healing for those moments. Yep. And I think that just puts so much more of an onus on the church and, you know, on, on your community, um, to kind of, as Pete, to use Pete Scissero's, um, phrasing, like to reparent, um, people into a new way of life. I do think like the body of Christ has such an important and, um, meaningful opportunity to do that. And I think a lot of times what's really sad is that the church has been a place that just reaffirms all the voices that have shaped us and defined us, you know, um, like 
if we if we've been shaped by authority figures who have abused us a lot of times they go to the church and they find more authority figures who abuse them you know and so like what would it be like for not only a person to tether themselves to the community but also for the community to truly be an embodiment of god's love mercy and acceptance you know so that people know what oh this is what it's like to have my voice heard and valued like this is what it's like to have like people with authority not abuse me but care for me and shepherd me you know and, and to that point that jason just mentioned to add on if you're listening and you're like yeah this is a great job for my pastor to do by the nature of our position sometimes it's impossible to do like there mm-hmm. are so many specifically you know, i'm not just only but you know certain like uh younger females at our church that when i approach them it's just like this weird barrier i'm like dude am i awkward am i weird and just realizing more and more like, dude, they probably have a bad encounter with males with authority. So it's so hard for me to like be able to do anything. But if you're listening, if you're same gender, same age, you don't have authority and you're like, yeah, the past will do it. It's impossible sometimes for us to do. So if you're listening, it's like it's a communal project. Like you, you Shame cannot just be like, oh, our pastor is going to give a sermon on this. It's going to be fine. No, no, no. It has to get to the nitty gritty. Life maps with people. Um, and, and just sharing conversations. So I, I think Jason's point is really helpful too. <clears throat> Another question I want to ask you that's more specific though um, is how do you heal from broken families of origin? So a lot of our listeners, you know, very if you're Korean or Asian American, uh, you know, there's always a trope of a silent stoic dad, but it's, it's there because it's often true, right? Often crazy tiger mom that's there too. And I guess for uh, one question I want to ask you guys is like, how, how do you heal from that? Is it, does it look like, oh, you need to go to your parents and talk about this with them? Or does it look like seeing therapy? Does it look like all of this? Um, I'm curious about how you guys feel about that question. I think a huge challenge, and I don't know if you have experienced it in your churches or personally, but I mean, it's, it's hard enough to get our generation to go see counseling and therapy. I really think our parents' generation like desperately needs counseling and therapy and yet they're so not open to it. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to my own parents about like, Hey, have you, have you thought about getting counseling? You know, even just to like, cause I, I, I find that as they're getting older, they, a lot of things are leaking, you know, about, you know, that I know are rooted in their past experiences that just they've never processed. And so I, I, I think it is challenging when, you know, you try to talk to your parents about something that they themselves have not processed. Um, but I, I personally am a huge believer now in counseling, therapy, spiritual direction, coaching, um, anything that kind of forces you to walk back your family of origin, um, and just talk about it with someone, um, that's been hugely impactful for me, um, just in my own life, in my own parenting journey, but also in ministry. I, the only thing I, I could add to this question is uh, from seeing therapy on my own. Um, I remember I asked my therapist, like, do I need to get to a point where, like, I forgive my mother or dad in this, you know, or not even free, but just, just talk about it. But he was like, dude, maybe, maybe not. But that's out of your control. Uh, healing for you in my perspective looks like being able to realize how much of your mother and father are mapping onto other people 
um, and realizing that and that that's uh, at least the beginning of healing. And I thought that was really helpful because, you know, the one the one main thing, how your mom and dad lingers, their influences, even let's say, you know, maybe they passed away. It's so easy to map what you went through with them, good or bad, onto other people. And, you know, especially in marriage, if you're a wife, your husband becomes every bad part about your father. If you're a husband, your wife becomes every bad part of your mother and just triggers you. And it just reminds you of them and your defense mechanism kicks in. So I guess one thing that's been helpful for me is just realizing like that is happening implicitly. And unless you're doing this work, like you can't heal from it because it's it's allowing kind of like what Tom mentioned before, it's allowing the the residue of, of brokenness just to continue over and over and over and over again. So to me, I realized like, yeah, healing doesn't mean just like seeing Kumbaya and like everything's okay. Maybe you won't even be able to talk to them. Maybe if you're listening, you're you're so messed up from your parents, like you don't even want to talk to them. There's space for that. But I think realizing and owning what it's doing to you is, is the first step to healing, I guess. One thing I'll also add is, you know, um, I do think sometimes like, and one, one thing I'm realizing as I'm getting older, and you know, they, they often say that sometimes as you get older, the roles reverse. Yep. You know, um, and I think a lot of times with our parents, we always assume that our parents are going to be the ones parenting us forever, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, even in our own community who kind of see harmful patterns and mindsets and paradigms in their parents. And they're like, oh my goodness, like, I don't even know how, you know, what hope there is for them because, you know, they're not willing to get any help. Yeah. But I do think that like as children, we actually um, can play a role in breaking some of those mindsets and paradigms for our parents too. Mm. Because for a lot of our parents, they grew up also in households where they had to earn love or, you know, they, they didn't feel worthy. And so one way we can love our parents well is actually to um, model for them unconditional love to show them grace, to not get pissed at them. Like every time they say something that like, you know, triggers us. Um, but, you know, to understand that they're also wounded and, you know, especially if you find yourself um, in a healthier place, um, maybe you've processed with a counselor, um, you know, you're tethered to a community. And so you're getting to kind of navigate some of this stuff with, fellow brothers and sisters, you can actually be a, a, a source of healing for your parents. And so not to neglect that as well. It's like turning red. Just, uh, I don't know if you watched that movie. I have my own opinions on that movie, but the end was really powerful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like everyone is broken for a reason. So, um, yeah, I, we spent a lot of time on this and, and I want to end, uh, with a couple of last questions. Um, one question I have is to flip the script to, uh, you know, as we're doing this, you might become more aware as I've realized that your friends, your spouse, your church members, maybe even your pastor has this going on. Like everyone has a past, uh, especially with their families of origin. I guess for you guys, what are one way, what are some ways we can help others around us deal with their past? Like, you know, if community is a, a community project to heal, like how can we do it? You know? So for example, Let's say someone's like, dude, 
you know, I, I haven't told anyone this, but my parents divorced. Like, how do you like, oh, do you say that sucks, man? And I'll pray for you. Or what are the best ways to kind of go about that? Um, if that makes sense. I think as a friend, I'm not sure how deep you can really get with that. Because kind of, a lot of it might depend on the person on how mm-hmm. deep they're willing to go. Uh, but I know one thing that's helpful when I experience it from other people is when I sense curiosity from them. Mm-hmm. I feel like curiosity is just really helpful. Like uh, when people like go, hey, you never like you never talked about your family before. Like what, what did your family even do? Or like, hey, like, you know, you I, I know you have a like you came from a broken household. Like what was that like? And it's not it's, it's not to like heal them or to like counsel them, but you're just genuinely curious. I know that makes me feel safe. And I think that might be what's most important is you feel very safe to share with somebody who will dignify what you went through. And so to me, that's kind of like the simplest first step to do is to not just hear the facts of what people are going went through, but to be curious about it. And it, it, it might bring them to a place where they are now curious about themselves. And so I feel that's a, a gift that a friend or someone in the community can do because you don't have much space or proper arenas to do that. If you do have arenas for that, that's great. But if you don't in that small window of time, I feel like curiosity is a nice tool to use. Yeah, if you can even get to the place where someone is willing to share their baggage or share their past with you, I mean, I think I think that in and of itself is huge. Um, I mean, I think that's the goal to be, be a safe person, to be able to talk to you about these things. I would say something, what not to do is no matter how knowledgeable you are on like family systems theory and attachment theory, like to not therapize people, because (laughs) usually when they talk to you, um, unless they're coming to you as a therapist and they're paying you money to therapize them, they're usually not going to you for that purpose. I've actually seen people sometimes like the the negative of knowing a lot is like when someone talks to you about this thing, you you know, you're like, mm, like that's like avoidant attachment theory right there, you know, and it's like, ah, you, you know, it's the worst. You don't want to hear that, you know? Yeah. And so I, th- I think really, yeah, like um, everyone is just longing to be seen and to be known that, you know, who they are has been shaped by some this either traumatic experience or season or childhood and so just being a listening ear i think is huge um yeah. i think it means a lot sorry yeah no I, I again we agree a lot but i think jason's answer is is spot on like don't make assumptions i i can share a story i think i have a close friend uh, his dad passed away at an early age uh um and it has no memory of him and he's in a bible study and he's sharing like you know, I'm going through this, this, and this. This scripture has uh, brought this up. And, and one of the older guys in the group was like, oh, this sounds like you have a lot of issues with your dad. You know, like, you should talk to your dad about this. And my friend was just, like, flabbergasted. Like, yeah, he's dead, you idiot. You know, that's what he wanted to tell him. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, I, I so agree. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes when you try and do surgery, you mess them up more. And, I, I you know, leave that to the professionals. But I, I think what Jason said, like, you know, one thing that always struck me is if we're called to be made in the image of God and we need to recognize that, one thing that's always hit me is the only way an image exists is if if it's seen by someone. And I think that's what just people need. Like um, curiosity and also just like, dude, that sucks. You know, like that phrase alone is so healing. Not like I know why it sucks. 
let me heal that suckiness, but like, dude, that sucks. And oftentimes when they open up, the best thing you can do is just like, I can't know exactly why that sucks, but I think that sucks because this is what I'm going through too. And I've always had really good conversations in that way where it's back and forth and ping pong. And you can't just be like, hey, that sucks, man. But that's be like, you know, you know what I mean? Like you ever have that? I'm like, dude, that sucks. <laughs> you just got to move on. Like that doesn't heal at all. <laughs> that's like, even has, worse. Yeah. That's even worse. But it has to be like emotive. Like, dude, yeah. that like, so uh, you, you, you can sense they feel you. And when that happens, like, yeah, something, something healing takes place. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully that's helpful. So don't, don't go around, uh, you know, trying to figure out which attachment theory each person's in. Um, but just do that to yourself and that'll be the most helpful thing. Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to end with, it, we already kind of talked about it, but just maybe one uh, book or, or rec that you would give on all this. So I know we mentioned Pete Scazzaro, some other resources. Uh, one thing I can start with is there's a book called uh, The Relational Soul by Richard Plass and James Cofield. Uh, I've been going through that for some of our church stuff. That's been really helpful. Again, very white. Nothing wrong with that. You got you to take what's good and what's bad. Um, but it's, it leaves a really good foundation of how relationships from the past have affected you and how you can break free from those two. I would say another resource um, is this book called Hold Me Tight by Sue Johnson. Uh, it's all about attachment theories. And she kind of focuses it more like within the marriage. But I feel like that leads to like this pathway to like exploring your past. And, and she kind of just talks about it at the ground level and she's pretty like well known, but hold me tight. That's a pretty helpful read. And then there's a book by Dan Allender called, um, I think it's called Healing the Wounded Heart. Uh, that one's a pretty good one as well. Um, one book that I just read, um, it's, it's not like, it's a little bit more indirect, but I think it'd be very healing for, you know, those of you who have maybe unprocessed wounds or things from the past is a book called This Here Flesh by Cole Arthur Riley. And it's, man, it's, uh, she's, uh, I don't know if you follow the like Instagram page, Black Liturgies, but um, she's incredible. And basically um, it actually takes, the whole book is taking stories from multiple generations of her own family to kind of, um, you know, process like wounds that are unhealed, you know, maybe patterns that have traveled through the generations, but it's just so real. And I think because it, it's written in a minority voice, um, I actually think it can be really healing um, for Asian Americans as well. Everyone I've recommended this book to has loved it and, and, tell, and tells me they've like cried while reading it. So yeah. definitely recommend it. That's hope that's helpful. Uh, if you're listening, you can read any of those resources. If you find a therapist too, uh, not that this is always a rule of thumb, but someone from your cultural background is much more easier to connect with as a just as a uh, piece of advice as well. So, you know, we're, all three of us are big on therapy, so I hope you probably already know that if you listen to our podcast. So, we hope this podcast has been helpful just kind of you know everyone's in their own journey dealing with your past but wherever you are just to keep kind of digging back into it never you know don't be scared of that find community do it together and we hope even this podcast was a, a, a pseudo community of sorts with that too so with that hey thanks for listening so far if, if you appreciate our podcast uh rate like comment subscribe we really appreciate it but thanks for listening hope you to have you on our next episode